Can I get a hell yeah? It's time to pray, Scorpion. Live long and prosper. Bad feeling about this. Try to turn you away from the things that I want to believe in. This is going to get pretty interesting. Define interesting. God, oh God, we're all going to die. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is episode 55. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, wherever you are, wherever you are, this is Miles P. McLaughlin. Yes, and welcome, welcome to the show. We are going to have some phenomenal discussions tonight, and we want you to be able to participate in them. We just want you to know that you can always participate in this show by calling us, letting you know, letting us know what you think about what we're saying, what we're talking about, the news items. Shows you're watching, your sci-fi five and five, everything at 1-888-508-4343. On the menu tonight, we are going to be talking about the impact of Farscape. Some of you are avid Farscape fans. We're going to be talking about this show. Uh, we want to know your thoughts on what we're saying, but this show is obviously has a huge cult following. Um, uh, and we're going to be inviting Keith to Canada to join us a little bit later on, as well as Kevin Batchelder from the Scapecast. We, of course, had Keith Canado on just a little bit ago, an interview we did regarding him, and just released a comic book on Farscape, so he's totally into Farscape, and we're going to be talking about the impact of Farscape on current sci-fi. Uh, in other news, Farscape does turn 11, actually, last week, and for Firefly, for Firefly fans, the secrets of Shepherd Book are coming to a store near you. News on Dr. Horrible 2, Nimoy says adios to the convention circuit, and we're going to look at the periodic table of sci-fi. So it should be a good show and anything else that we just choose to talk about or partake of. Sounds good. Yeah, it does. It does. Miles, what have you been watching in sci-fi? Well, I'm continuing to enjoy Caprica. I'm liking what they're doing with Caprica. Uh, happy that uh, Flash Forward came back. Uh, they had a two-hour um, uh, season per premiere episode last I week. I loved that episode. That was a great episode. It was phenomenal. And so introduced a new interesting character, a um, window washer turned uh, motivational uh, speaker, preacher. Uh, so that, that should be interesting to see what, where, what direction that goes. Right, right. And, uh, of course, our main character got reinstated back to the FBI. Yes. Yes, he did. So it was very cool. So, yeah, and I, we were watching that. We are watching Caprica. Uh, I just got done watching 2012 a second time. I was doing it as I ran. It's really um, great effects in that movie, but, you know, yeah, eh, run it. If you haven't seen it, run it. That's about it. That's all I can say yeah. about it. Run it. Uh, and I'm watching Chuck. I'm working my way through season two of Chuck. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm at. Oh, and Farscape, but we're going to talk about that later on. But looking forward to um, me coming back next week. Uh, Fringe. Fringe. And Fringe, definitely Fringe. Looking forward to that coming back, too. It's all good, all good. Well, let's move into some show news. I just have a, one big note here, one big note, or one note, period, and that is we mentioned last time we are a part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. If you get a chance, please check out some of their other podcasts. Uh, they do some really good work. Miles, am I missing any news here? I think we got it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, not a lot of news here. We're going to be at shore leave. If you're going to shore leave, you can obviously let us know. We'll be talking about that as we get closer to the date, but we are there. Uh, our trivia, by the way, will be back after the, uh, after our, we're going to take a two week break here, probably because of Easter. I'm traveling actually next week and the following week. So this will be, um, we probably won't have a podcast out for another, I guess, three weeks from now after this. But um, we will be bringing back trivia when we bring back our interview. And I'm not sure what interview we're going to do next. Maybe Felicia Day. That would be kind of cool. It would. 
It would. Anyways, we'll talk. But whatever the case is, we'll be bringing that back and uh, in full force. And I believe that's it. I don't have anything else to say. Sound about good? I, I think sound- we covered it. Yeah, I think I think we covered it. Before we actually get into our news and we bring Keith and Kevin into the show, we're going to play a promo from the Chronic Rift. If you haven't checked out these people, they do a lot of interviews with books, uh, book authors and comic book artists and people that – are just integrated into the world of sci-fi. Some great panel discussions. Keith the Canada is a part of it, uh, so make sure you check them out. Okay, guys, I found him. John, what are you doing? I'm just playing around with some of the features on my editing program. Look, John, this is a podcast, not a TV show. Why don't you just keep it simple this time? I keep it simple. No, you don't. We had a perfectly good show with news, reviews, and a roundtable discussion, and you kept turning it into a circus. The alien attack for a season finale? The live episodes? The musical? I never got to do the musical. And you won't either. For the love of God, how many times do you want this show to jump the shark? But keep it simple. Simple. Yeah, man, don't mess around with what works. All right. All right. I wouldn't I have it any other way. way. Hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Okay, welcome back to the Sci-Fi Potter. Uh, if I can speak here. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Donner. Yeah. This is a great start to the it's show. show. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. W- joining us, Miles, we have two great, great people here. Keith, welcome to the show. Hello. Yep, and uh, you, of course, heard Keith. We interviewed Keith the Canada, uh, one was that, two or three episodes ago? Yeah, we And I uh, actually interviewed him at Farpoint, just a little, uh, I guess now two months, going in two months almost. And, uh Surely. Yeah, shortly? No, it was, it was far point. No, no. It was far point. That was only a month ago. Yeah, oh, you're right. Was, yeah, right. Not shortly. It just yeah. seems like two months ago. Yeah, because, it seems know, like forever. But, um, <laughs> and then we, uh, and then we have with us I've Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have Kevin Batchelder with us, whom you've heard on the show, though we've never had on the show. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Oh, thanks very much, God. I've been listening to you guys for a while, so it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to have someone on, another fellow podcaster. Actually, you are a podcasting fiend, Kevin. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> How many podcasts do you do now? Uh, regularly right now, I've got uh, four. Four. Man, and, 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 and are they weekly? They're all weekly? No, they're not all weekly. Uh, a couple of them are weekly and a couple of them are uh, biweekly or, or thereabouts, so they do. Schedules do vary a little bit. Right. So what, real quickly, what are all the podcasts you do? Uh, okay. Well, real quickly, I'll go chronologically. So no one accuses me of playing favorites. <laughs> uh, first, <laughs> first one I got involved in was, uh, The Signal, which is all about Firefly and Serenity. Uh, that was back in 2005. Then came, uh, The Scapecast, which Keith has been on for Farscape, uh, back in 2006. And then, the Yes, yeah, there we go. Yeah, actually, that was the first time I was telling these guys that I met you, Keith, was at uh, one of those uh, screenings back in 2005, I think. Yeah. And then came uh, Tuning Into Sci-Fi TV, where we cover all the genre shows. And then more recently, I started up one for called the Seeker Cast, which is all about Legend of the Seeker. Very cool. And, and, and Keith, you aren't, a, you aren't a stranger to podcasting either. What podcast or podcasts are you involved in? Uh, I'm part of the Chronic Rift podcast, which has been going since late 2000. Actually, a revival of a public access show that the same group of us did in the early 1990s. Uh, we revived it as a podcast uh, in a way. It's a pop culture discussion show. We have roundtable discussions. We have interviews. We have reviews, um, spotlight episodes on various things. It's, it's uh, multi-purpose, and it's, it's pretty much weekly at this point. Um, I do a TV review segment called Couch Potato Salad uh, for that. I do some interviews and I've led a couple of roundtable discussions. I'm also involved with a podcast, actually, an audio drama called HG World, which is a post-apocalypse apocalypse stories, basically, uh, set in the Algonquin Valley in western Pennsylvania. And I play Todd Rage, who is a, 
gay Vietnam veteran right wing radio show host. Uh, this is why they call it acting. <laughs> right. And that's uh, the, the first season. We, we just finished season zero of that, and season one is about to start. So uh, I'm involved with those. They're a lot of fun. Well, very cool. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us. Let's go ahead and jump into some news here that we're going to talk about before we talk about Farscape, which is where we're headed here. Our first piece of news came courtesy of Bill, Billy Fenn's has kind of shared this with me. The Secrets of Firefly's Shepherd book will finally be revealed. Miles, why don't you go ahead and just give us a little bit of details on this news story? Sure. Shepherd book, possibly the most mysterious character on Josh Whedon's ill-fated space western Firefly, is to start in a comic book that will finally let us in on his past. A character with a mysterious past is hardly a new idea for Joss Whedon. By Firefly's Shepherd book was a particularly good one. Played by Ron Glass, the Shepherd, the term used for men of the cloth on the show, clearly had not been a godservant all his life, and some pretty high-level connections with the Alliance. What made the mystery extra potent, however, was that the show got canceled, and we never got to find out what his mysterious past actually was. All that is about to change, though, is a new comic book entitled The Shepherd's Tale is coming out that will finally cast some light on the preacher's colorful life. The book is written by Zach Whedon and based on a detailed scene-by-scene outline from Brother Joss. Zach Whedon said about the book, You will see book's full trajectory, how he became the man he was in the show, and who his pre- who he was previous to that. Well, that's not good. No, that's not good. Well, that's it. Uh, who needs Miles? Let's get rid of Miles here. Singing a pattern here. We only get dropping. Yeah, dropping. Not meant to happen here. Sure. That's what you say now. Yeah. That's right. This gives Keith more of a chance to catch up on dinner. It does. Hello. This is Miles McLaughlin. Oh, now I'm getting his answering machine. It's even better. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs Miles? I'll finish the story. Book specifically is a great character to do the origin of this because he knows a little about the show. The little hints that we get are so enticing, and his history is very, well, complicated. It's an intricate set of circumstances created that created the man we met in the show, so it's very fun to explore. The Shepherd's Tale comes out in November as a hardcover graphic novel. Are you guys looking forward to this? Oh, absolutely. We've been talking about it for years over on The Signal. I was specifically told, sorry, I mean (laughs) <laughs> I didn't realize you were going to ask me questions. Um, <laughs> I figured out oh, a new segment I can eat. Right. Um, when I was writing the novelization of Serenity in uh, in 2004, I was specifically instructed not, not to reveal anything about book. I was it was fine with coming up with backstory for Mister Universe uh, and for Fanti and Mingo, both of which I did, but um, book was off limits. I took that one step further and made sure that there were no scenes in the novelization or even from books POV. So we never even got inside his head, um, which was which was a very conscious choice. I figured, you know, if I can't reveal anything, then I'm really not going to reveal anything, keep the air of mystery about him. So um, because of that, I'm really eager to know what the heck the story is there. So um, I'm really looking forward to this. And and the art, just from the samples I've seen, looks gorgeous. All yeah, right. Brown coats have been waiting to see exactly what's going on. I mean, every year we see Ron at conventions. One of the first questions is, you know, what's Book's backstory in typical Ron Glass fashion? He tilts his head back and laughs, and the rest of us just have to wait. Yeah. All right, let me see if I can bring in Miles here again. I'm back. Whoa. You there? I'm back. Okay, good. All right. Um, Over by the grown-ups on peanuts. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It sounds like that. That's good old Skype working for us here. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move into the next piece of, piece of news. We, of course, I heard this by by our good friend Dayton Ward, who shared this news item, although it was out there. Neil Patrick Harris talks Doc, Doctor Horrible two and a possible theatrical release. We, of course, have been looking forward to Doctor Horrible for a long time, at least in this show. And there, um, there's no doubt that a sequel will eventually happen. It's just a matter on how we're going to end up watching it. He seriously doubt we'll be watching the sequel online, though. There's a strong possibility the sequel will get a theatrical release. This isn't news. Joss Whedon and Jed Whedon have been talking about Dr. Horrible 2 getting a feature film release since last year. I don't know. What do you guys think about moving moving a Dr. Horrible 2 into the theater? Well, uh, and the only my only issue there is, like, is it going to have the same problem Serenity had, which was trying to find a balance between people who hadn't, seen the original i mean while it had a huge cult following it's still 
you know, was a, was a limited, the, the original Dr. Horrible was a fairly limited release, all told. Um, and, and if you're going to do it as a theatrical release, is it going to be something that's going to be accessible to somebody who hasn't seen the, uh, the original web series? And if so, you know, is it going to be something that won't work for people who have seen it? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough balancing act. Uh, unless, of course, they decide to release the first one theatrically as well, which they could. <laughs> they could do that too. It would be what about a forty-five minute? No, it was. Would you segment about fifteen minutes long? Yeah, something like that. I mean, yeah. you, could, you could edit it together as a single right. thing. Well, you could maybe maybe you make it maybe you make uh, Doctor Horrible one and Doctor Horrible two uh, part of the same movie. I don't know if that would work or not. Yeah, yeah, that could. Work. Right. I don't know. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, it, it. They've all, you know, many of the folks involved have certainly got enough high profile that uh, jump into theater can work. But it's just like Keith said, it's still very much a niche as far as the uh, following. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'd love to see the exposure for everybody, but uh, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic about going to that medium. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Success of cast probably works in its favor, assuming, you know, Nathan will be back as as, as um. Um, Captain Hammer. Because that was, yes. Yeah. Uh, the hammer is my penis. Yes. <laughs> nice. um, the, the, uh, 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 if, if Nathan's increased profile on, on Castle will only help in that Right, way. right. Miles, what do you think of this? Probably be... nope. Miles apparently doesn't think very nope. much of it. Yeah, in, fact, in fact, he just left. He said, heck with this. I'm not talking about this story. You guys suck. Um, <laughs> uh, anyways, we can talk about him now and he doesn't even know. No, uh, you know, my, my, th- my thoughts in this whole thing is I think that uh, I'm a little bit concerned about moving it to a feature film release. Uh, because number one, I, I love Dr. Horrible One and I loved its online, the way it was like kind of an online thing and then you could rent it on DVD and, um, and then you can watch it on Netflix and, and, and all that was fine and good. I see Whedon as being very successful with the online market. And when he's made his leap, whether it, been, whether it was through Buffy or whether it was through uh, Serenity, when he makes the leap to the big screen, it just never comes off quite as well as some of his TV shows do or as, as well as his online stuff does. So I'm a little bit concerned. I mean, I don't, I don't know if – I'm not I, – don't get me wrong. I would go see it. But I'm just concerned that it would be just another strike against his movie career. I don't know. Well, the only thing we can hope this time is that much like the online version was, if he's able to have the total control, you know, if he's able to get his friends and, and you know, not have too much interference from studio sides, then they could make it work. But that jump to, to feature film usually requires going out both from a financial and from a uh, resource point of view and having to get other folks involved. Conveniently, it probably won't be that expensive to him, considering he basically put together, you know, the first one with the pockets, pretty much. Right. Um, and and the, and the story doesn't really require a huge budget either. That was part of the part of the entertainment value of it. So if he if he stays low budget with with it, well, let's move on into. Uh, let me let me see if I can invite Miles here again back into the conversation here. I hope to God you're editing this. Man. Oh man, <laughs> I always edit the show, and this show is going to need a lot of editing. That is for sure. All right, uh, bringing Miles back into the conversation here. Miles, are you going to hang in with us here? I'm trying, man. It's a tough night. It is a tough night. Um, Well, let's move into uh, Leonard Nimoy announcing that this is his last year on the convention circuit. Keith, we were talking about this earlier. He said this before, right? He not only said that before, he said he was never going to act again before, and we can see how well that lasted. Um, Yes. Having said that, you know, the man's about 100 years old, so, you know, there's a certain point where it probably gets exhausting. I mean, I just... I was just at Emerald City Comic Con where, where you know, I was a guest and, you know, his lines were ridiculous and, and that's just got physically exhausting after a while. So, you know, I, I'm not surprised that, you know, he's taken advantage of, of his work on both Star Trek to, you know, as a promotional thing for himself and for his work and, and both his television work and his photography work. It's a promotional thing. But after a while, that sort of thing really takes its toll even on somebody, you know, much younger than him. So... I, I can I can see why he's made that decision given the the sheer tonnage of conventions he's been doing over the last year and a half. Right. How 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 old is Nimoy actually? You said a hundred years old, but he's not quite that old. No. 
Well, Shatner just turned 79 and they're about the same age. So okay. I think he's in his 80s. Still, to be doing yeah. this, to be, to doing the convention work at, at 80 years old, that's, 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 that, that does take a toll on you. He basically, he's, he sits down and he's signing autographs for the next two hours straight. You know? Right, right. Oh yeah. yeah, the line at uh, Last Dragon Con when he and Shatner were together was just insane. Oh, I'll bet to see both of them together. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt at all. But uh, you know, as he said, he said this before. He may or may not do it again. You know, if he's around another five years beyond that, he might make another appearance. Who knows? As you said, he he, he as you said he uh, wasn't going to act again, and then we saw him in Star Trek, and then in Fringe, and I believe that's it. Did he do any other acting beyond that? That was those are the two that I'm familiar with. Not that I'm aware of, no. Yeah, no, that's no. the two I'm familiar with. Um, um, Sean Connery said, "Never say never again." That's <laughs> that's right. Um, and we're also going to talk real briefly. Uh, it came, I, I, I encountered this the other, uh, I guess, the other day. The periodic table of sci-fi. We'll put a link in our show notes to this. But basically, this is like the periodic elements. I guess you study in science classes. If it's all sci-fi shows, so it's kind of fun. Of course, number one element is Star Trek: The Original Series. US. So if you get a chance, check it out. That's probably all we'll mention that as far as our news goes, unless you want to make any co- anyone wants to make any comments on it. So it looks oh, good. No, it's all, all the fanboys have fun seeing. Oh yeah, it's it's all fanboy funness. But well, let's move into some book news, and we're just gonna let you, uh, Keith, tell us about some of the books and some of the comics that we have here. Why don't you start off telling us a little bit about the Seven Deadly Sins? There are seven novella-length stories, and each represents one of the seven deadly sins as expressed through a species or a place in the Star Trek universe. Uh, the stories include um, Pride, which is the Romulans, which is by uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. Um, you guys know very well. And um, uh, Envy is uh, the Cardassians, which is written by James Swallow. Greed is, surprise, the Ferengi, uh, which David McEntee did a wonderful, they're actually all wonderful stories. I've actually read the anthology and, you know, uh, even with the drag effect of my crappy story, it's actually a really good anthology. <laughs> um, uh, Wrath is, is the one I did, which is the Klingons. Um, right, and, right, Envy, Greed, Wrath. Um, Lust is the Mirror Universe. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, uh, that's an entertaining one. Gluttony is the Borg. And that leaves Sloth, which is um, the Pacolet, oh, which cool. was a story written by Greg Cox, and it has the best title in the entire anthology. The title is Work is Hard. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. And uh, those, these are, these are you know, novella-like stories, so there's a little extra. It's more than just, you know, more storytelling space than a short story anthology. And I got to, actually, for the first time, I have written a metric ton of Klingon focused fiction over over the course of my career, but all of it has been 24th century Klingons. This is my first chance to write some 23rd century stuff, and it was really cool. Uh, I wrote a story involving Kor Kang and Kolath, uh, one of their first their first times working together, all three of them, uh, and it involves uh, the issues between the smooth headed Klingons and the ridge headed Klingons, based on what we learned in, in Enterprise as to how they how that came about. And, and it was so much fun writing these guys. You know, um, I've, I've written those characters in their older forms any number of times. Uh, and they're just, they're, they're really just wonderfully rich one, uh, characters as created by Michael and Sarah, John Colicos and, and William Campbell. And, um, I just think their, their, their conversations and their, their speaking styles and their command styles and everything. I also got to use a couple of characters who were established in IDW's, uh, Klingon. Tell miniseries that came out right right after IDW got the license. Uh, Scott and David Tipton and David Messina did that miniseries where they told the Klingon side of a bunch of original series Klingon stories, and they crew entire crews for both Kor's ship and Kang's ship. And I used several of those characters in my story. Very cool, very cool. And they can pick up this uh, they, they can pick up this anthology of stories at any bookstore, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it should be available. You know, and, and usually at the end of the uh, science fiction and fantasy section, where all, all the other media giants are, they'll have um, in most bookstores. They should have that uh, the Seven Deadly Sins anthology. It's got a uh, it's a trade paperback. Uh, I believe it's seven sixteen ninety nine, and uh, all seven stories are represented uh, in in various forms on the cover. It's really cool. 
Very, very cool. Uh, and- I was just saying it was conceived by Marco Palmieri several years ago, actually. How he came to me with it was, how'd you like to write some 23rd century Klingons for a change? And I said, cool. So, and it all went down. Yeah, Miles? Ah, <laughs> oh, call drop. There, there we go. Yes, we done. have, in fact, once again, lost, lost Miles. 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 Okay, well, why don't you move in? Tell us a little bit about the uh, latest Farscape comic that you, uh, that just was released, I believe, last week it came out. I could be wrong. Came out on St. Patrick's Day. It, uh, oh, two weeks that ago. That was issue five, which, yeah. Um, it kicks off the Red Sky at Morning arc, which, uh, is when ser- things are starting to kick into high gear. Um, basically, once Boom Studios decided to make Farscape an ongoing series, and then the later decision to add a second ongoing series that focused on Scorpius, um, the, the, the storytelling is lo- looking a bit more long-term. We weren't sure how long this is going to last, so so Rockney and, and our editor, Ian Brill, and I were all thinking just in terms of each miniseries. You know, okay, we're going to do this miniseries and this miniseries. Now that we've got a commitment to an ongoing series, we're thinking a little bigger. We're still doing four-issue story arcs, but there's there's an overall bigger story going on. Uh, and we saw seeds of it in the first arc, uh, Tangled Roots, but Red Sky at Morning is when it really we, – we started seeing um, – some new aliens who who are going to be around for a while, mm. and issue five of the Farscape comic, which is the one that just came out St. Patrick's Day, uh, is is a it introduces the 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 new aliens at least to some extent, and it also it's a bit of a a, a slightly different issue. We, it's a little more contemplative. There's a bunch of of scenes where we just sit and get inside each of the characters' heads and see where they are at this point in the storyline. Uh, makes it a handy jumping on point also for, yeah. for new readers uh, if they want to come in. Uh, and just, just you know, a brief pause to, you know, see where everyone's head is at before we start, you know, going full tilt boogie into the next big storyline. Right. Um, and we also, one of the things uh, where they're going and where the storyline will take place is on the home world of the pilots, uh, which we saw briefly in one of the flashbacks in The Way We Weren't, but we'll get to see it in a bit more depth. Uh, Will Sloney, the artist, did a beautiful job of designing the place uh, based on what we saw. Lots of swamps and jungles and stuff. And it's going to be really cool. Very cool. And uh, the Scorpius comic that you have coming out, that ties into the Farscape universe? Yeah, it's also going to be post-finale. It'll it'll take place, you know, basically take place alongside the monthly Farscape comic. Um, We'll see Scorpius, uh, where he wound up after... He was exiled from Hyneria at the end of the first miniseries we did. That was the last time we saw Scorpius. And, and to see where he ended up and where um, he goes from there. I'm not actually scripting that one. That is being scripted by David Allen Mack, who is a fellow Star Trek author. He's written uh, a bunch of uh, Star Trek novels, most notably the Destiny trilogy that came out in 2008. And um, he also wrote, has written a Wolverine novel and a 4400 novel, and he had an original fantasy, urban fantasy that came out last year called The Calling. And uh, he's he was a big Farscape fan, and he was the perfect choice for this, because he's he's more temperamentally suited to writing Scorpius, I think, than I am, and you can read it of that whatever you want. <laughs> but it's a good, we're used to working together. So, um, you know, we're being good at coordinating our stories with each other and making sure everything matches. Very cool. And we're happy. Well, we're going to. And that comes out in April. That comes out in April, then. Yeah, good. Yeah, you d- you did say that earlier. Awesome. Before we uh, head into yeah, talking about Farscape, issue zero, which is a weird marketing thing, but um, and why why is that? I, I for whatever reason you think so better if you start with issue zero and move to issue one. I don't know why. I don't pretend to understand, but I'm perfectly happy to take advantage of it. Uh, which means the first story arc will be in issues zero, one, two, and three, and then the next one will be in four, five, six, and seven, and so on. So, as as with the Farscape comic, we're we're the main Farscape comic. We're doing any other miniseries we did. We're doing them as four issue story arcs, and then each four issue story arc will be collected into a single bound volume, which will be available both in comic stores and in bookstores. Yeah. So, all right, we're going to take a short break here. Before we do, I thought we would. Uh, play the promo for the Scapecast. Did you want to introduce uh, the Scapecast a little bit to our listeners? Uh, sure. What uh, Scapecast is, is uh, obviously based on our conversation, a podcast all about Farscape. We have uh, many in-depth articles looking at characters and storylines, as well as other uh, sci-fi related content and reviews and interviews with cast and certainly uh, some well-known authors, Wink Wink AA. Keith's been on there a couple of times as well. Very cool. Well, here's a promo for the Scapecast. 
In a world where we wait for a new Farscape series, one small crew sends out a beacon of hope to scapers everywhere. Hi, this is Ben Brown. Hi, I'm Claudia Black. Hi, I'm David Franklin. Hi, this is Rayleigh Hill. Hi, this is Paul Goddard. Hi, I'm Gigi Edgley, and you're listening to Escapecast. Hi, everyone. Attention. Last time in our hero's journey. La, la, la. Well, you are, she says, as she's knocking John out with her rifle. I'm Wendy Hembrock with the news. Yeah, baby, it's time once again. Bye. L-M-N-O-P. You know, I'm tired of these mother frelly stings on my mother frelly leviathan. Holy cannoli. I'll feed the vampire slayer. We'll be dead. Oh no. You can find the Scapecast at scapecast.org. Every time I think that there's more to you than a pair of pushed up loomers and a corset. If only we had some way to keep up our stamina. Naughty mist. Does mommy know your hair? Oh no, mommy doesn't. No. Here's a rematch, Crichton. What a lovely fantasy of family reconciliation. Where's your neck? Shut up. Escape Cast, your guide to the wonders of Farscape. Welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. We are now going to head into our segment talking about all things Farscape. Now, just to give a little bit of introduction to this, this was a groundbreaking sci-fi production. Uh, Farscape was a global favorite, named by TV Guide as one of television's best cult shows ever, and by Empire Magazine as one of the 50 greatest TV shows of all time. Farscape is known for the overwhelming fan base campaign that led to its miniseries production, Farscape, The Peacekeeper Wars. The show has continued to find new audiences as it airs in syndication and is available on DVD around the world as well as on iTunes, where it debuted as a top-selling sci-fi show. Uh, figurines and plush are also available along with Farscape comic book series, which is entirely sold out five days after its first volume premiered in December 2008. So this is the show that we're talking about. And uh, you guys, uh, I would consider Kevin, Keith, you guys know a little bit more about Farscape than probably Miles and I do. Miles, I know, has watched an episode or two. I've, I'm have i halfway through the second season, and I'm loving it. Uh, but uh, what made this show such a great show for you guys? Uh, Kevin, why don't you start off? Well, there's – actually, I think for me there's many different parts of it. Um as you probably know a little bit, Scott, as you've been going through the series, the series is changing. It evolves. What it starts out as is nowhere near where it ends up, which is uh, something you really get to appreciate as a viewer. Uh, it really makes you feel comfortable. It was one of the first shows, I think, that allowed the, shall we say, the average guy to be the hero. John Crichton is not some uh, some highly polished Star Trek character like you might see, someone who's going to get everything right so you get to really feel like you're a part of the story and very much it, it's one of those shows that creates a, a great sense of family the people on that ship the characters that you start to see you really feel like you care about them and you want to know what happens to them and you can also easily identify with them so it's it's an emotional attachment for me and i think many other people and uh, the the series really broke a lot of ground as far as storytelling and being able to as the phrase goes now uh go there. You know, it did not stay on the straight and narrow. There were, there were lots of twists and turns and it, it's quite a visual entertainment too. I mean, I could go on for hours, but uh, that, that's some of what hits me first. Okay. Keith, how about you? What made this show so great for you? Well, it it took a convention that's, that has been done before, but the reason why it's been done before is because it works. It's the same basic premise that worked for, for Flash Gordon and worked for Buck Rogers, where you take a contemporary human somebody who will be, you know, recognizable and identifiable to the audience and puts him in a, a completely out there setting. You know, in Buck Rogers' case, you know, in the far future, in the case of both Flash Gordon and, and John Crichton, you know, halfway across the galaxy to a strange alien landscape. Uh, um, on top of that, I mean, you've already got a story that already has, you know, appeal on that. On top of that, you've got... A story, you know, as Kevin said, it was a it was a show that was willing to go there and also had had a hero who would screw up on a regular basis. In fact, he screwed up rather spectacularly on a regular basis. <laughs> um, but but you know, he kept coming back too, and and that's the type of hero who, to me at least, is is more appealing. My favorite heroes tend to be characters like Spider Man instead of Superman. You know, um, 
or a character like, you know, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer was somebody who continues being a hero even when the entire world is arrayed against them. Uh, you know, it's easy for Superman to be a hero. He can do pretty much anything. It's much harder for someone like Spider-Man who's got, you know, so much crap happening in his life to keep going. And Crichton is the same way, and to, and to a lesser extent, so are the other characters on the show. Um, and also, on top of that, you've got the phenomenal aliens and alien landscapes created by Jim Henson's Creature Shop, hmm. which... Um, to my mind, that's that that is one of the greatest appeals of, of Farscape, because more than you know any CGI landscape that has yet to be created, more than any makeup that has been done elsewhere, and more than than you know matte paintings or what have you, the Creature Shop really succeeded more than anybody else in creating true alien uh, uh, worlds and people and, and creatures. You know, uh, uh, like the um, in the very first episode, there was that, that weird toothy thing that Rigel negotiating with. Uh, the, the scientist in DNA Man Scientist, um, the, the Placavians, uh, uh, who were, you know, the really cool stuff. Uh, and, and that, that really, you know, as, as a fan of science fiction, I really appreciated that because one of, one of the problems with a lot of movies and TV shows is that they're limited to some extent by the fact that ultimately you've got human actors playing most of these roles. Hmm. Um, with the uh, the ingenuity of the creature shop, particularly with their ability to create characters like Rigel, like Pilot, uh, who are you know in essence Muppets, uh, although more complicated than that, and and they're fully realized characters as well, you know. And part of that is due to the creature shop, and part of that is due to the voice acting. Um, but still, that's so it was, it was that whole combination of things. Right. Well, you know, you bring up something interesting there. You know, this is. This is probably one of the last shows, at least that I'm aware of, that really has gone all out in using, you know, uh, I guess these, 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 these Jim Henson puppetry that, that he was so well known for. And it, one of the thoughts I had is, you know, this, this may be the last show, last great show to really do that because everyone's, everyone's gravitating to CGI these days. The Henson company still gets worked occasionally. They did the, uh, uh, where the wild things are, for example. Oh, true. Um, because you know, yeah, because the makers of that film thought that you know the CGI would not have the right tactile effect that you really needed to make it work, and that that'll still happen, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but I guess as far as a on, I don't think there's anybody who thinks Yoda looked better in the prequel trilogy. So. No. <laughs> No, true, true. Now, Miles, you you said that you watched the very the very first episode. That's probably as far as you've got. What was your impression just watching that first episode of someone that's just kind of getting into Farscape? Um, I thought very colorful characters. Um, as soon as uh, Crichton goes to the wormhole and is on Moya, just um, just not just. In their personalities, but um, also just just literally. I mean, it just there's a lot of color in this show that's lacking in, in a lot of sci-fi shows. It just seems um, but not not afraid to uh, you know explore you know with, with color. Um, but but like well, like Keith said, uh, the hero is not you know infallible like a lot of our heroes in sci-fi are or seem to be to be. I mean, he's a you know. He, you know, he struggles, he's, he makes mistakes, and he's trying to do the best he can. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've, that I've liked, you know, talking about what I have liked about the show so far, and again, I'm not near as far as, you know, as some of you are in, in the show, and is that the ensemble cast, this reminds me very much of a Firefly cast. In fact, some people have said that Firefly was kind of a derivative of this show. Um, but I, I think about like the way not, Firefly was not a derivative of this show. Firefly was a derivative of the crew of the Betty and Alien Resurrection. Okay, <laughs> okay, true. But I mean, it just just I guess what I'm thinking of the way that each character was so unique. Every every single character had its own strength and flaws, just like you saw in, in the cast of Serenity, I guess I was saying, and the cast of Firefly, where you have um, a, a, a wide array of characters, each with their distinct personality, and yet working together, they are the crew of Moya. 
And, and so one of the things I've grown to love is to watch the interactions and, and watch when they take these, the, these characters and they turn them upside down their head and put them in these wacky situations that they have to figure out how to work together and, you know, screw up along the way. Um, it just makes it for a fun and entertaining episode, uh, on Farscape. At least that's the way I feel about it. I think one of the things I've seen that's helped folks uh, get the most out of it too, Scott, is that uh, you really have to go all in. You know, some folks watch this and between, as Miles was saying, the, the visual color, the the onslaught to the senses and the Muppets and everything else, some folks have a hard time, I don't know if you want to say believing it or accepting it, but if, if you, like I said, put yourself all in, put yourself in that position of being a member of that crew or being John Crichton. You're in for one hell of a ride, but, uh, you know, that's when you'll get the most out of it is when you feel like you're a part of it. Well, that's one of the things I know that some people, um, I don't know if I was talking to you, Kevin, about it, but I know I talked to people that said, well, if you, you know, the first season's kind of hit or miss, but if you make it through the first season, the second season gets better. Um, I enjoyed the first season in saying that. Uh, for people who had told me that, I don't again, I don't know who that was. The first season actually worked for me as a season. I mean, it had its moments. Certainly, it had its episodes that maybe I was less fond of than others. But um, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the way the story. Of all four what was that? It's true of all four seasons. There's, mm-hmm. there's episodes that point out and say, "Well, that wouldn't work," but um, and some more than others. The first, and the first season, they were still trying to figure out what they could get away with. That was, and that's, you know, that's true of a lot of shows. It's like they, they, you start conservative and then work your way. Uh, once they got to the end of the first season and they did the, the four part, the in essence, uh, uh, three part story, um, going to be wild sort of shoved in the middle of there. But even so, I mean, the bug's life nerve, uh, uh, hidden memory and, and, um, the finale, which I'm blanking on the title of, uh, yeah, basically the, the, the arc that introduced Scorpius, uh, once that kicked in, that was sort of when the storytelling changed to something a bit more ambitious. Right. Um, and part of, and you know, part of that was just, they weren't, I mean, you, you don't know how long your show is going to last. You don't want to, you don't want to dive in that thoroughly to something when you're still getting your feet wet. You know, initially they just wanted to make sure that the concept worked and they, and they did, and they told some really good stories in there. Uh, and then, and once, once they were settled in as a successful show, they were able to level. Well, cool. I, you know, I just, I was wondering, um, too, th- th- this, this show, when it, when it first aired was what is a syndicated show, right? No, 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 no. It was on sci-fi. Yeah. But, uh, well, I guess, I guess when I was, I was listening to some commentary off the, uh, the first season, I thought they said they were looking at it as being a syndicated show. Is that true? Or am I initially, actually, that? originally, they originally were developing it for the Fox network. Uh, right, right. And, uh, that was that was the the initial thought was it was it was Rockney O'Bannon working with the the Jim Henson company to develop a science fiction show, and they initially pitched it to Fox. They also uh, tried to get it up and running as a syndicated show because this was this is in the late '90s when um, there were lots of syndicated shows out there. This is when this is the heyday of Hercules, uh, Babylon Five, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, and so on. Um, eventually, they wound up going with Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, and it was it was Sci-Fi's uh, flagship show for a while. Right, right. Four years and then a miniseries. And didn't it spawn? It spawned a, did it spawn a movie off of that too? Is that correct? No, just the miniseries. Just the miniseries. Okay. Well, right. and, uh, and and a really really crappy comic book that some hack writes. But yeah. yeah well, that's, <laughs> but I wasn't going to say anything, but <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, no, it's 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 the four seasons and the miniseries. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, any, any thoughts on any of this or? Well, I would just say it's, it's very, I'm sitting here smiling a bit hearing where you are in the series, Scott, because, <laughs> uh, see, that's, you know, that's people who've seen the show. As soon as you start talking like that, we all start smiling. I mean, you're, consider it a roller coaster ride. And, and while the first season is good and the second season is kind of good, you're just about to come around a turn, a very dark turn, and you're in for one heck of a roller coaster ride. Dude, well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely looking forward to it. So it's been, it's been great. It's been, I've been, I've been working through the episodes while I'm, uh, while I've been running on the treadmill and it's just been a, a wonderful experience to kind of just watch shows and disengage with these characters. Um, now do, who are some of your, who are, I know we talked about Crichton being like this, the, the unsung hero, the hero that is not really a heroic type, this common man type hero of the show. What were the other characters that really stood 
out to to you guys. And uh, Keith, why don't we let you go first this time? Uh, my two favorites, probably, uh, and probably two of the stronger characters were uh, Aaron, son, and, and Rigel. Um, this is not to shortchange any of the others, but those are the two that I particularly found appealing, and that's partly due to my own. You know, but um, Aaron is just such a wonderfully complex character um, who's and it was fascinating watching the relationship between her and Crichton develop because he was the way I put it, I wrote a Farscape novel back in 2001 called House of Cards and the way I put it in that novel was um, Crichton, that, that Aaron was under equipped for a relationship and Crichton was over equipped for it and that was part of their problem um, she, she is the one who goes through arguably the largest transformation over the course of the series because when we first meet her she is a loyal peacekeeper uh, and the first thing Crichton says to her is, you can be more. And basically her entire journey throughout the series, all the way through to the end of the Peacekeeper Wars, is her trying to live up to Crichton's belief in her, that she can be more. Um, and wonderfully, wonderfully well-realized character. And, and it's watching her journey throughout the, the, the entire show is just a joy to watch. As far as Rigel goes, Rigel, it's easy to underestimate Rigel because, you know, oh, well, he's just the Muppet. But he's the smartest guy on that ship. Um, the problem is, of course, that he knows it, but <laughs> else is willing to admit it. But m one of my absolute favorite episodes is, um, uh, I believe, a, a late third season episode uh, called Ienge Uyenge, which has Rigel, accompanied by Dargo, negotiating with Scorpius or something. Uh, since you haven't seen it, I won't specify what it was. But basically, they meet on neutral ground. Uh, and throughout this entire episode, including when outside factors conspire to complicate the negotiations somewhat, uh, there is no moment anywhere in that episode when Rigel is not in complete control of the situation. Even more so than Scorpius. Look at that. But there were, there were several moment the situation was out of Scorpius's control and he wasn't didn't have a handle on things that was never true for Rigel. Um, mm. um this is the guy who has been through 150 well cycles of imprisonment and torture and he's still as strong as he ever was um he's also a great deal of fun to write because he is so magnificently obnoxious um and and he often gets the best lines so uh uh i just those those are the two characters that i particularly gravitate Kevin, how about for you? Well, for me, more so than the characters, because you know, Keith covered some excellent points there, I, I love to watch the dynamic of the character interactions, because for many years, yeah. I don't know what you guys, but most of the shows we get, uh, certainly anything with any kind of a, a military situation involved, there is a chain of command. You know who's in charge, you know who's low on the pole. With Farscape, no one's in charge and everyone's in charge. So right. depending upon what's happening on any given episode and which characters are coming to the forefront, everybody can screw up and everybody can be the hero and everyone causes problems. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just uh, an absolute joy to wait and see what's going to happen next. So uh, in a certain part of the series, I might you know, completely agree with Keith that it's wonderful to see Rigel step out in front and realize you've got uh, all of his background. And then other times, you know, Characters like Chiana and, and Aaron are coming together and other characters who come in later in the series, too. Um, it's just amazing to watch that um, canvas, I kind of think of it, because it's, it's, it's very much uh, a moving picture. It's changing who is where. And as Keith said, a very important point there, while John Crichton appears to be the hero and appears to be the, the focus of the story, there's many, many Farscape fans that will tell you, especially once you finish the series, no, it's really Aaron's story. That's really what everybody wasn't aware of going through is watching. It was really done from her perspective. And that's where rewatches become so much more enjoyable too because this story stays fresh every time you come back to it. Yeah, because you can follow it. You get a different yeah, character. Yeah, that's actually time. really good. There's a really good argument to be made that, that, that the, the, the spine of Farscape is Aaron's journey. Hmm. You know that that it's it's that that's sort of the driving force of the show in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the same story that some people who are fans of Xena said that this that, that Xena was really 
really about Gabrielle, not really, even though it was called Xeno Warrior Princess. It was about what Gabrielle, Gabrielle's journey. Right. And, right. and you know, I know there's in a lot of ways going on the classic heroic journey. You know, right. far, even far more so right in this. Hmm. Well, now, you know, I, I'm looking at Farsky now through the lens of, you know, the show has been when when la, the last Farscape episode aired when 2004 or is it earlier or later than that? Uh, the show the show aired from 1999 to 2003 and then the Peacekeeper Wars was in 2004. Okay, so you know, kind of ended there. Uh, what, in your opinion, uh, what has been the impact of Farscape on modern sci-fi? I guess maybe that's a lofty question there. Um, but, uh, you know, how have you seen it impacting the shows that followed in the wake of it? I mean, Farscape, other than obviously the obvious spring, the comic books, the novels, the, the, um, the, uh, and some of that, what, what, how has it impacted? And, uh, Kevin, what are your thoughts in this? Well, that's kind of a tough one to put a finger on. I think one of the things that, that it, uh, Farscape did well and maybe other series then were able to, to feel like they could try is, is shall we say bold storytelling. Um, you know, they weren't afraid, as I've said before, to go there. I mean, some of the things they did as characters and some of the storylines, um, wasn't just your traditional, uh, straight and narrow path, um, to let some of the other characters come to the forefront to, to have, uh, uh you know, really the, the relationships succeed and fail. Uh, as I said, that whole idea that no one's in charge, that you could then pull that off in other shows to have a different level of people lead things. Uh, it's it's really been something that, that I think at least it maybe it's the rose-colored glasses of being a big fan that I now see that in some other shows. But uh, for me, this was very much where it turned it on its head and it didn't have to have the, the captain, the first officer, and so forth down. You really could see a show where you could gravitate to a group of people leading things. Right, right. Uh, Keith, how about for you? I think I, I kind of actually wish it had more influence than it did. I, I, I one thing I, I can say is that it had some influence, I think, on uh, what became sci-fi's new uh, uh, sort of tentpole uh, fr- uh, flagship show, which is the Stargate franchise. Um, Stargate SG One actually predated Farscape by uh, about a, a year or two. But and then it came over. It started out on Showtime and then came over to Sci-Fi in its uh, sixth season. But its spinoffs, Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe. I think I think there's a little bit of Farscape in both those shows' DNA. Uh, in particular, Stargate Atlantis. Pretty much everything that happened throughout that series was because the main character screwed the hell up. Um, and and throughout the run of the show, they screwed up several more times. Uh, which is not something SG-1 ever did. SG-1, there were always, I mean, and, and I say this as somebody who adores SG-1. They were the heroes. They were the ones who did who did things right, not uh, and against what that's what they did. Um, with Atlantis, there was there was a lot more of a sense that that they were, and part of it is because like like with Farscape, they're on you know part of the universe, and they were pretty much tap dancing and trying to figure out how to do it properly, and that's there's the Farscape in that. And then the same thing with with the current show, Stargate Universe, where where they're, the chain of command is blurry to say the least. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think Miles and, and I. Are... It's the same. Yeah. What... Go ahead. Yeah. No, go. Well, ahead. I was just saying what Kevin said about about the lack of uh, of a proper chain of command. There is technically a chain of command, but it's 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 fraying at the edges with every episode. Yeah. Um, so that I think I think there's at least, you know, the the, the, the there's a little bit of Farscape in there. Well, and you might be able to make the same argument for shows like uh, Firefly, where even though Mal was in charge, there was uh, the entire crew at different points kind of ran things. Yeah. Um, in that. talking about SG One, you know, of course, you know, uh, you know, Bridges and um, and, uh, and and Black were both in the the end of that run, so it was kind of good to see them come in as, I guess, uh, front runners for the SG One team. Claudia originally came on to SG One in the uh, eighth season as a as a guest star, and that was intended to be a one off. But her chemistry with Michael Shanks was so phenomenally good in that episode that they brought her back, particularly because uh, Amanda Tapping got pregnant and they needed to replace her for a certain number of episodes. Uh, so they brought her in. And what I especially loved about that was Bella Maldoran is about 180 degrees from Aaron's son. 
you could not find two more different characters. The only thing they have in common is that they're played by the same woman. Right. Um, and it was that was a joy to watch just because she was so different. Uh, Browder came in separately when Richard Dean decided he wasn't up to the, the rigors of doing a weekly show anymore, and they needed a new male lead. Um, Cameron Mitchell was a much more traditional character and, and, and certainly nowhere near as batshit insane as Crichton got right. uh, over the course of Farscape, partly just because of the situation. Uh, he had his moments, though. There was, there was, there was. I remember my absolute, one of my absolute favorite scenes on SG One was when they were actually traveling with their counterparts from an alternate timeline, and the two Mitchells are getting together, comparing family stories, and it was just the funniest damn thing, you know. And Emma, and Emma, whoa! She appeared on the Dresden Files. She was actually had, had the Dresden Files been renewed, it would have been brought back. Um, she appeared as a as a as a private investigator. Uh, she was really good in the one episode she appeared in. Um, yeah, that, but that was a fun episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she 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 and um, oh god, what's his name? The guy who played uh, Harry Dresden, the tall guy, um, British actor. Hmm. Together. Yeah, I did. I haven't watched Dresden Files so yet. I have not. So. It was a fun show. It was, yeah, it, was, fun. Yeah. it was. It it it. You know, it had its. It had. It was. It was. It was. It was decently done. It didn't blow the doors off, but it was a lot of fun. And and it and it raised the profile of the books. Jim Butcher is a friend of mine, so I was really grateful for it because it just meant more books sales for him. So. <laughs> right. Right. Well, uh, anything else here about Farscape that we should talk about as far as its impact, or um, maybe maybe it'd be maybe. Um, one of the things that would be good for our listeners to hear is uh, why do you believe Farscape is an important show? Uh, well, I think boy. it showed, I think it showed that you can actually have convincing aliens on a TV show. It showed that you can, you can, as Kevin so aptly put it, go there. Um, you know, there, there, one of the things the show was always was taking the standard sci-fi plots and turning them on their ear. Um, and it was, it, I think, I think it, you know, because Farscape kind of blazed the way for it, it gave, it gave other people a chance to actually, you know, take that extra step and, and go a little extra crazy that they might not have been willing to do before. Hmm. And, uh, how about you, Kevin? Well, the thing I keep coming back to, cause I, shows that I love, I, I tend to have the emotional tie to them. I, and, and, you know, Miles can maybe stow this one away in the back of his mind. He's only watched an episode or two. The amazing journey that this group of people takes to eventually become what I call a family, um, mm -hmm. you know, the family unit, the idea of, and, and many times you'll see this throughout the first couple of seasons, you would never, ever think these folks would get to the point that they do come the end of the show. It's quite a journey. So it really, it shows you how uh, a disparaging group of people with, with totally different values and, and goals can come together and, and how that works to show you that, you know, the way you might approach things in your own life or in other shows. It's, I, I find it quite fascinating every time. Well, let's head into our sci-fi five and five. And, uh, I think we con Keith into doing this. Uh, Keith, are you doing the, your top five moments or five episodes? I mean, how are you? How are you viewing this? Five, what I thought were major turning points in the show's history. All right, All right great. Well, why don't you go ahead and um, give us your sci-fi five and five for Farscape? Uh, the first is one that's not so much a turning point for the show itself, but the turning point for me as a viewer of the show. Uh, there's a moment in an episode called The Human Reaction where Crichton is, thinks he's back on Earth, and, and Miles, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil this for you. Uh, he thinks he's back on Earth, and he's starting to get hints that this isn't really Earth, but it's a construct that somebody created for memories. And his way of confirming it is to open the bar he's been to before, and he opens the door to the women's room. He'd never been in the women's room before, so the aliens reading his mind had no point of reference by which to uh, uh, construct it. So the women's room is just an orange, swirly mess. 
Right. I thought that was brilliant. That was what hooked me on the show. Like at that, I, I caught a couple of episodes here and there. I saw that moment where Crichton thought to check the women's room, and I was like, okay, I like this show now. The other four are things that I think are important turning points in the show itself. One is in a late first season episode called A Bug's Life where Aaron is stabbed. After that happens in the next episode, Nerve, Crichton pretty much bullies everybody into saving Aaron's life, which includes infiltrating a gamic base, uh, pretending to be a peacekeeper whose I didn't show that they had stolen. Um, this was the first time where Crichton basically took charge. Up until this point, he was the, the dumb monkey who was struggling through and trying to figure out what was going on in this strange part of the, of the universe. This was his first time stepping up. Um, and also, you know, him basically saying, look, this this woman we all care about is sick. We need to go down there and fix her. Um, the, the third is actually in that very same nerve, which is when Scorpius sees Crichton. Scorpius has the ability to read heat signatures, and he instantly recognizes that even though Sebastians and humans look alike to most people, to Scorpius they look completely different because they have different heat signatures. So Scorpius discovers John's ruse, and this sets the tone for the entire rest of the series because pretty much from that point on, Scorpius is after John. And the rest of the series hinges on that to some degree or other, and it's all because of that one moment when they happen to pass each other in a hallway. Um, the fourth is an ep- a second season episode called The Way We Were In. We learned a great deal in this episode about Erin, about her past to be deeper, uh, about Pilot, specifically how he came to be on Moya, and also, to a lesser extent, about Crace, and also about Talon, who was Moya's offspring that was born at the end of the first season. Anybody who watches this episode and thinks that an animatronic creature can't make you cry, if you come out of that episode without that, you have no soul. <laughs> basically um, because Pilot is amazing in this episode both both in terms of uh, how he's how he's seen in, in the animatronic creature created by the Henson shop and how he's voiced by Lonnie Tupu it's just amazing and then the last one is actually the one from the very final storyline which is the birth of John and Aaron's son uh, in the Peacekeeper Wars because there's no bigger turning point in anybody's life than, than, than creating new life. Absolutely. Those are my five. Great. Far too much for which I apologize. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your sci-fi five and five. Listeners, if you want to share your sci-fi five and five, you can always call us at 1-888-508-4343, and we'll play them on the air. Before we go, guys, let's give you, we're going to give you a chance to kind of uh, pimp uh, where people can find you. And uh, Kevin, why don't we start with you? Where can people find out about you and all the shows that you're involved in? Well, for the uh, Skipcast, that's Skipcast.org. Or Firefly stuff, it's SerenityFirefly.com. And at uh, TuningIntoSciFiTV.com is the uh, genre podcast we do. Those are probably the good starting points, and all of those will have links to any other stuff I'm involved in. Yeah, And they can find you on Twitter, too, right? Yes, yeah, as K Batchelder. Hey, Batchelder, great. Uh, Keith, where can people find out about you? Uh, I have a horribly out-of-date and in desperate need of an update website at decendido.net. Uh, that will also link you to my blog, which is on LiveJournal under the username of Cradical, K-R-A-D-I-C-A-L. Uh, and I'm also on both Facebook and Twitter under the username Cradic, K-R-A-D-E-C. Uh, if you friend me on Facebook, I'll friend you back. I, I pretty much just friend anybody who does, so don't worry about that. You can keep track of my comings and goings and such. I do a lot of convention appearances, uh, and my 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 stalker's guide is on both my blog and my Facebook, and easily findable. So uh, I know I'm going to be in April. I'm going to be at uh, C2E2 in Chicago at the Boom Studios booth. At the end of April, I'm going to be at the Calgary Expo in Calgary at the Boom Studios booth. Uh, I'm going to be at Balticon in Baltimore in May, as well as uh, the American Library Association Conference in New York, also in late May. Um, I'm going to be. At, I'm also the author guest of honor at In Conjunction in Indianapolis uh, over Fourth of July weekend. I'm going to be at Shore Leave in Baltimore in July. I'm going to be at uh, Comic Con International in San Diego in July. 
uh, Fan Expo in Toronto in August and Dragon Con in uh, Atlanta in September, as well as probably some others that I'm forgetting. Oh, right, New York Comic Con in New York. I, I can commute to that one. Um, <laughs> New York Comic Con in New York in uh, uh, in Manhattan. So. Very cool. And that one's in is that one in January? Which the the New York Comic Con. That's in October. October this okay. year, they moved it from February to October. Okay, so, very cool. Uh, it'll it'll be in October at the Javits Center in New York City, and I'll I'll be there also at the Boom Studios booth. So you're, um, so you're, you're not busy at all, then? That's what you're saying. No, not a bit of it. Very good. And Miles, where can they find you? The- uh, I'm also on Twitter, uh, Son of Wharf at Twitter, um, and I'm also on Trekspace, Son of Wharf at Trekspace. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter at Herzog, H-E-R-T-Z-O-G. We also have a Twitter for Sci-Fi Diner. And uh, you can visit our Facebook page. You can find links to that on our website at the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast.com. Guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight in our discussion of Farscape and all things Farscape and its impact on right. television. Thank you so much for joining us. Our, our, my pleasure. Very, a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, Keith, thanks for joining us as well. You're very welcome. Very welcome. And Miles, take it away. Till then, good night and good luck. All right, we'll see ya. 